Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on a ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is the word of our God, church. Psalm 33. So we will return to Mark's gospel in January, but this is the first Sunday of the Advent season. Advent is observed by many different Christian denominations as a time of expectant waiting and preparation, of celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. The word itself, Advent, uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus, Uh, which very simply means coming in Latin. And the message of Advent is the message of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who for a time took on flesh and became one of us. Amen? John writes of this in his gospel. That first passage is on the screen for you. Uh, The very first verse of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just a few verses later, John will make it crystal clear who the eternal Word is in history. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians and says, your attitude, speaking to Christians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and understanding that the message of Advent Church is the incarnation, that it is indeed the gospel, we see also that very clearly it is a message of hope. And this is what the first candle that I lit um, this morning, this candle represents. The hope of the gospel. The hope of Jesus Christ that is ours. Because the word, the eternal word, put on flesh for a time and became one of us. We need to understand this truth. Our situation would be completely hopeless had Jesus not come. Two reasons for that. There are more, but we'll start with these. Reason number one, we will all die. What a great, joyful, positive note, Pastor. Sometimes speaking the truth is the most loving option. We will all die. Keeping this life is absolutely hopeless. I mean, I would encourage you to exercise, eat healthy. These are good things. Paul said to Timothy, physical education is of some value. Right? Exercise, eating well. You can do those things. You can do what you can to sustain your physical life. And that's God-honoring. But... Unless you are alive when Jesus returns, the reality for all of us in this room is that we will face death. There's no hope, let me put it this way, there's no hope of getting out of this life alive unless Christ returns first. The reality of physical death is clearly pictured in Scripture. We can look to the Bible and see this. King David prays to God this beautiful prayer. It's on the screen there for you in First Chronicles chapter 29, where David prays, Praise be to you, O Lord, God our Father, Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor comes from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Pure worship up to this moment for David. Just pure worship. God, this is who you are. This is how glorious you are, God. And then he draws a contrast. And what's the contrast to himself? Verse 14 says, but who am I? Who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And then don't miss what he says next, because here's really the point for what we're talking about this morning. We are aliens and strangers in your sight. As were all our forefathers, our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. What is David saying? He's saying, look, God, you are creator. You are glorious. You are magnificent. And what am I? I'm, I'm your creation. There's a vast difference, isn't there, church, between the creator and the creation. And David has seen this. He's acknowledging this before God. God, you're eternal, but man, even a king like myself, David would say, even a king like me, my life is brief. 
gone in an instant. And no one can prevent that inevitable time of death from coming. Job says something very similar. This is during the darkest time of Job's life. And he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And they come to an end without hope. Do you ever think these thoughts? Where did the years go? How many of you in this room would say, I've thought the thought. Where did the years go? Let me see your hands. Come on now. Some of you aren't being real with me today. Where did the years go? I, for me, my illustration is this. I have a 23-year-old daughter right now living in Seoul, Korea. She probably just went to bed. Oh, yeah, she's probably sleeping right now. It's uh, 12.30 a.m. Monday <laughs> in Seoul, Korea right now. But I do this. And I close my eyes, and I picture her, and I do not picture a 23-year-old woman who's able to navigate international travel and live on her own in a foreign culture and very quickly absorb a foreign language. I don't picture that. You know what I picture when I go like this? I picture a three-year-old with blonde, bouncy curls who was not allowed to walk across the street unless I was holding her hand. I picture the little girl that I used to take up to Birchwood Mall and ride the carousel with. 20 years, gone like that. 20 years, just gone. Anybody with me today? I mean, just, it goes so fast, church. Just life is a vapor. It quickly disappears. And then, and then the question for us, the question then, if you're, I mean, I hate to say this, but I don't want to say that atheists are non-thinking people. I know there are a lot of smart atheists out there. But how do you get through this life without thinking about this question? What happens next? Because this life is so brief, it's so quick, it's so short. And then what happens? And I wonder why people aren't caught up more with that question. Because I think that question leads us to the second reason our situation would have been hopeless if Jesus had not come. It's, it's very simply this. There is no one who is righteous. Had Jesus not come, our situation would be hopeless because there is no one who has ever lived other than Jesus Christ himself who can claim to be righteous. Amen? There's no one who's able to stand before the living God. So we need to ask that question right now. What do you believe about God? And, and I would propose to you that really there's only three basic, three basic possible answers to this question. Of, of the question is, what do you believe about God? Three options. Let me take you through them as quickly as I can. Number one is irreligion. Other words that you might use to describe this view would be naturalism, atheism, but irreligion. Basically, one of your options when it comes to what do you believe about God or what happens next when this life is over is to deny the existence of God. You can choose to do that. You can choose to deny that there is a God, that there is a righteous judge that you will one day stand before. However, here's the thing. 
Your believing it or not believing it does not change that reality. <laughs> you, could, you could choose to deny the existence of God. God's not threatened by that. He's still pretty content being real. That's an option for you. You can deny that. But just understand this, that God doesn't disappear if someone doesn't believe in him. That's why this um, postmodern nonsense that I've grown up with, I remember being a lit student at Cornerstone University, I don't know, a lifetime ago, and, and postmodernity was just coming into academic thinking, and it was starting to trickle down into popular thinking, and basically one of the tenets of postmodernity says something like this, well, yeah, 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 that's true for you, but it's not true for me. What's that? That's not a religious statement. That's a philosophical statement. It, it contradicts one of the fundamental laws of logic. If I, if I put it in logic form, it would say this, A cannot equal B and not equal B all at the same time. In other words, God can't exist and not exist all at the same time. Church, either God exists or he doesn't, but it can't be both. And so postmodernity has taught nonsense through the years. Again, it's not even a religious statement I'm making. It's a philosophical one. Your believing or not believing doesn't change reality. God doesn't disappear if someone doesn't believe in him. This isn't Peter Pan, you know, that a... A pixie falls to the ground if a child says they don't believe in pixies. It doesn't make any difference to God whether or not a person chooses to believe in him or not. God still exists. It's reality. I think, though, that this view is actually even more common, but I would still put it under this category of irreligion. You've probably heard a lot of people like me who would say they believe in God's existence, but they absolutely live as though God doesn't exist. You know those folks? Maybe you're one of those folks. In other words, you would definitely say, oh yeah, I believe in the existence of God. But that belief does not change your life in the least. And I think that's still under this category of irreligion. The Bible talks about a living holy God, a righteous judge, that will one day we will all stand before. And so assuming that you accept the reality of God, of this righteous judge, that one day we will all stand before, there's another question that you ought to ask yourself. Again, this is just if you're a thinking person and you care about what's going to happen after this life is over. What's that question you should ask yourself is, what will be my defense on that day? If indeed there is a God, and if indeed he's a righteous judge that we will one day stand before, what is going to be my defense when I stand before him one day? And that leads us to the second option of what you could choose to believe about God in the afterlife. And, and that very simply is religion. This is option number two, religion. You can believe that there is a God and that this God is a righteous judge that one day you will stand before. And you could choose to believe. Now listen, because this is where I think a lot of people who spend their whole life in church are at. You could choose to believe that your own righteousness, that your own goodness will be enough on that day. And that based on your own merit, God will accept you. 
And again, I don't know about you, but I have often encountered, interacted with, had these conversations with people who believe this. What do they say? They they say things like this. Would God send a good person to hell? I'm a good person. Would God send me to hell? I mean, I'm a good person. I, I mean, I get God sending really bad people to hell. I get that he sends killers to hell, really violent people to hell, IRS employees to hell. Just kidding. I get that, right? But I'm a good person. God wouldn't send a good person to hell. At this point, that individual would have to stop and ask themselves a follow-up question. Do you believe that the Bible is true? Because if you believe the Bible is true, you know that you do not fall into that category of a good person and that no one ever has. Scripture is crystal clear on this issue. You are not righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18 is just one of many passages we could look at here. Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Could probably stop right there. (laughs) There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. These are pretty definitive words. Not a whole lot of subjectivity here, church, right? This is fairly objective. No one, no one, no one, all. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery. Mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This does not sound like a very good description of good people, does it? No. So to review, there's two options so far. First one, irreligion. There is no God, no righteous judge. This life is all there is. There's nothing to follow. That's irreligion. Basically, you live, you die, you're done. You know, you're you're just a collection of atoms. And and when you breathe your last, that's it. You know, other people are going to go to the church and, and eat potato salad and say nice things about you. But as far as you're concerned, that's it. That's irreligion. And you might think, well, I'm mocking their belief. And I guess in a way I am because I find it to be preposterous and this giant step of faith that it takes to be an atheist that I'm not willing to take, right? So I guess in a way I'm kind of mocking their belief, but it's, I I just don't get it. Uh, Number two, option number two is religion. There is a God, there is a righteous judge, and you're counting on being good enough to pass the test. You're counting on that. It's like almost like there's this big cosmic scale, and here's the bad stuff you've done, and here's the good stuff you've done, and you're just kind of counting on that that good is going to outweigh the bad, and that God's going to look at your cosmic scale and say, ah, man, you're good. Come on in. And that's kind of what you're banking on. That's religion. Now, Scripture is clear. Neither one. Okay. This is where I'm really hoping no one's tuned out yet. Scripture is clear. Neither one of these offer any hope. Irreligion, no hope. Religion, no hope. I can honestly say when when people, non-Christians that I interact with say, are you a religious person? Not at all. 
I am not a religious person. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. But I hate religion. I hate it. I absolutely detest religion. Why? Because religion has probably sent as many people to hell through the centuries as irreligion has. This idea that somehow we can be good enough to attain God's favor. There's no hope in either view. Let me just scripture bomb you very quickly here. Job 8.13. Am I on the right track? Yep, there it is. I'm having a hard time seeing the back screen. Job 8.13. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. Job 11.20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Jack, can you just change that for me and track with me here for a minute? Job 27.8. For what hope has the godless when he is cut off, when God takes away his life? Proverbs eleven seven. when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. Proverbs 24, 20, for the evil man has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. And then Jeremiah 17, 3 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. All of these passages reference both the irreligious and the religious, the godless and the unrighteous. So if you realize that to live and die holding to either of these beliefs, irreligion or religion, is to have absolutely no life, no hope for the life to come, then you'll understand why the incarnation and why the gospel is so necessary. And this is the the third option to that question of what do you believe about God and what do you think is going to happen next the moment after you breathe your last breath? Here's the third option, the gospel. It's understanding that Advent The coming of Jesus Christ as a baby, the eternal word, the son of the living God, taking on flesh for a time is a message of hope. The Bible's clear that those who know God should have hope because God himself is hope. Romans 15, 13. It's not working. There we go. Romans 15, 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the gospel. Here's what God has done. God has given us hope so that we could be overflowed with, guess what, some of these other candles that we'll be lighting here in the next couple of weeks. There's a candle for peace. There's a candle for joy. Listen to what Paul says here. May the God of hope fill you with joy and with peace. Hope is the foundation because we can hope in Christ because of all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, church. We have peace in our lives now, amen? We have joy in our lives now because of our hope in Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say also to the Romans in chapter 5? He says, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That'll be the fourth candle that we light. 
themes of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, love. All center in the message of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because of the hope that we have, we can know peace. We can know joy. We can know love. Because God has poured out the Holy Spirit to us. It's what we see all through Scripture. The people of God expressing their hope in God. It, it certainly was a resounding theme for the psalmist. Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5. The psalmist says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all the day long. Psalm 33, 18, the psalmist says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. We see it in the prophets, in Jeremiah. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all of this. Micah, we see the same thing. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And this continues right through the New Testament. Because now the Messiah has come. Because now Jesus has come, and now we know that our hope is in Jesus and all that he has done for us. Paul will write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.10 and say, He, Jesus, has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. I love that. Your salvation is not all about your conversion. It is. Your conversion is part of your salvation. Some of you were saved, quote-unquote, past tense. In other words, you were converted to Christianity 10, 20, 30, for me, 40 years ago. Some of you, you're like, ah, oh, you're a babe in Christ at 40 years. I've been saved for 50, 60, 70 years. In that moment where you reached out by faith, faith to God and said, I believe, I trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross. I know I can't save myself. Religion is crazy, and I can't trust in me. I've got to trust in Jesus. <laughs> and in that moment, you were saved irrevocably, cannot be lost, because you trusted in Christ and his Holy Spirit saved you for the day of your redemption. Amen? But listen, church, you're still being saved every day. You are being saved from wrong-headed, evil, wicked decisions you would have made without Christ. You, you are being saved from so many natural consequences that would have been your destiny had Jesus not reached down and saved you. And one day, he will save you completely. One day, you will breathe your last. And on that day, he will say, come on home. Come on home. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Glory to God. All our hope is in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy and says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And, and for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, 
who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. And, and, and Peter writes, Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. How is option three distinct from the first two options? Well, for one thing, it works. Option three is totally distinct from your religion and from religion. Because the gospel says that there is a living holy God, a righteous judge that I will one day stand before. And the gospel says, I am not righteous but sinful, and left to myself, I am condemned. I am absolutely without hope. But the good news is that Jesus came, lived a self, totally a selfless, sacrificial, sinless life, died on the cross in my place. Not only did he take all the penalty for my sin, but he extended his perfect righteousness to me so that when God the Father, that righteous judge, looks at me now, he doesn't see sinful, worthless Terry, but he sees the glory of his perfect son. Is that something to rejoice in today, church? How beautiful is this gospel message? Why would we all not be like the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What is there to be embarrassed about in our faith? God has given us a great gift in Christ, and because of what he's accomplished for us, we can now know true salvation with him. So the glory, glory of God. Because now when we stand before the righteous judge, we will not be condemned. Now we have hope. Now we have hope because of all that Jesus has done. If you've repented of your sin and you've trusted in him for your salvation today, there's no cause for fear anymore. You have hope because of Christ. What are we hoping for? Well, nothing less than abundant and eternal life. Let's close with this. Here's what we're hoping for, church. Here's what we know to be true because of what Jesus has done for us. First of all, Paul writes to Titus and says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Paul writes to the Christians in Colossians and says to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is that mystery? Very simply this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let that sink in for a minute. I don't, I don't know that I can get past that right there. I mean, that, that to me, that says it all. What is the hope that is, that is ours? Listen, that Jesus Christ lives in you. He is in you. Is Jesus Christ going to spend an eternity in hell? Oh, of course not. He's God. He's the eternal Son of God. He's in you. Listen, he's in you. If you have put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, Christ, the eternal Logos, the eternal Son, the one who, before there was anything, ex nihilo, created out of nothing, nothing in existence, and he starts breathing and speaking things into existence. That eternal God lives in you. And because of that, you can have the hope of glory. Amen, church? 
Amen. Let's bow our heads, please. Close your eyes and worship team, come on up and we'll sing in response to this. This is our first Sunday of Advent Church and I'm excited about this journey we're going to take together over the next month as we continue to look at those themes of joy and peace and love and and not just I really believe hope is the foundational one because now as we look at joy and peace and love and Christ at the center we're going to be talking more about not just the hope that we have for ourselves but also the joy that we have in Christ and how that joy ought to come out in our lives the peace that we have in Christ and how we ought to be peacemakers in the world, the love that we have in God, and how that love should now come out of us. And so, God, we just pray and pause in a moment of stillness, just for a moment. And we ask you to change our hearts. Lord, we are in a culture that is so angry right now. There's so much division everywhere you turn. There's just so much hostility. Lord, even at family gatherings, some of us might have come from Thanksgiving gatherings a week or so ago, and maybe it got tense or hard for a time, or there were certain topics we just knew we couldn't talk about her. God, as we think on what your word says on these themes of hope and peace, joy and love, would you change our hearts, Lord, so that we could be agents of transformation into the lives of others? Would you teach us, Jesus, what it means to be at peace peace with you, but also to live at peace with each other. Would you teach us, Lord, in the coming weeks what it means to be joyful, to have the joy of our salvation, yes, but also to be an agent of joy into the lives of others, that though we may not be happy about all of our circumstances, and we certainly may not be excited about the state of the world right now and any number of issues we could talk about, Lord, that we have the joy of our salvation. That Jesus, what you've done for us means that this life is certainly not the end and this is not all there is, Lord, but we know that there is an even greater life to come. And Lord, finally, help us to be agents of love. Help us to realize that our fight is not with people. Our fight is for people. Our fight is with the enemy. Our fight is with spiritual forces in the heavenly realms that seek to destroy the truth, that seek to drag people into hell, either through irreligion or religion. And God, may we learn, even in the coming weeks, what it means to be an agent of love, to go to people, and to express the love of God to them, and to live out the love of God before them, that we might see more and more people come to this great salvation that is ours and come into the worship of God, 
so that they might know abundant and eternal life. God, this is our prayer this morning. We love you, Jesus, in your name.